Coming to you from New York City, it's the Friars Club Podcast. Established in 1904, the Friars Club is the birthplace of the celebrity roast and has counted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crystal, Barbara Streisand, and Johnny Carson among its members. So come on in for a drink and some laughs with your host, Joe Sibilia. Hello and welcome to the Friars Club Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sibilia, and joining me today is legendary stand-up comedian and actor best known for his eponymous sitcom, and he's currently starring in an all-new sitcom, Lopez vs. Lopez, with his daughter, Mayan Lopez, Fridays at 8, 7 central on NBC, and you can also watch it on Peacock, and his name is George Lopez, but I think you all know that. George, thank you for being with me today. How are you? It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Anything for the Friars. (laughs) Well, let me start by asking you a simple question. How did you first become associated with the Friars Club? Well, I mean, aside from growing up and seeing uh, all of my favorite comedians from New York standing with the Friars logo behind them and, you know, appreciating that, I had my last rap party for my first show at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills. It's not there anymore, but, you know, anything around comedy, I've, I've either, you know, been around or found way to get in it. What was it like, uh, the Friars of Beverly Hills? Because obviously there's a New York Friars Club, but then there was, uh, for many years, as you mentioned, the uh, Beverly Hills Friars Club, which was sort of a, a spinoff of the New York one. What do you remember about uh, being at the Beverly Hills Club? Well, first of all, the one in New York, I put it up there with the Russian Tea Room and Carnegie and Carnegie Hall. I mean, it, you feel um, like you have been woven into like a fabric of comedy when you are a member and you get to go into New York. But the one in Beverly Hills was a little more subdued, a little more of almost like a a supper club. You know, they have the kibitz room, they have places you can go and have a drink and uh, smoke a cigar. All very, very uh, impressive for somebody who grew up in, in Los Angeles and never thought about going in there, much less becoming a friar. Now, you, of course, uh, idolized many of the Friars, one of them being uh, Richard Pryor, uh, who was uh, roasted by the Friars Club in the uh, early 90s. You got to know Richard a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, where do I start, man? I mean, we would listen to album, this guy, Art, that we were in you know, junior high and then high school. We'd go to this guy, Art, who was older than us. He worked, he was married, and we would spend Friday or maybe Saturday, and we'd go to his place and and listen to Richard Pryor's albums and just sit in the living room and laugh. I mean, I mean, amazing to think you're just sitting in the living room with the guys you go to school with and then his, you know, cousin and people that are older. And then you're just sitting there having a beer or having a drink and laughing at a record player. I mean, amazing. So, so from that time, yes, you know, Richard Pryor. And then I used to go to his house on Parthenia. I used to work a mile from his house and I used to drive by his house every day in the afternoon and every day when I got out of work to see if I could see him pulling out of his driveway. Oh wow. And and then I noticed that his orange tree overhung on like the street side. I don't think there was a sidewalk there, but it, it, his orange tree was over and one night I'm like, I gotta get out, I gotta get me some oranges now. Richard Pryor property. So I get these oranges, I put them down, I get in the car the next day, I make orange juice, I want to be like, I'm going to be, I'm going to have some Richard Pryor power in me with the oranges from his, <laughs> from his yard. That's for me. And uh, <laughs> as excited as it was, the whole concept of it, it didn't work. If I saw something that I would never see again, I took it. 
And you did that with Freddie Prince, if I'm not mistaken, too. That's another one. I mean, I was maybe 13. I saw the promo for Chico and the Man, and I think I might have seen his Tonight Show on a rerun. I don't think I saw it the night of. I think my, some of my friends did in school. I saw the promos for Chico and the Man in that summer of 73, 74. And anybody who's been in a relationship where you see somebody for the first time and you're just taken by them and you you know that, you know, women have said or, or guys have said, that's the woman that I'm going to marry. You know, I knew her for five minutes. And I would say that for me, that was the first time I ever fell in love with somebody. As soon as I knew that he was in Forest Lawn, I was still in high school and I would go on Saturdays or, and I would just sit there and just talk to him. And, and you know, me and my friend, Daryl did school and we went to NBC and took the tour and got lost on the tour, you know, and then we're just walking through NBC. Like if we, if nobody thought we were going to stand out. I remember I saw Gene Gene, the dancing machine in the hallway. <laughs> and uh, I saw where, the, where I think the guy, Johnny Carson talks about it sometimes. The guy that used to shine shoes had his own shoe shine place there that he would close up and then open like a kiosk. And in there was a picture of Freddie Prinze. And it said like, my man, love you. Thanks for the shine. You know, and all the NBC people there in that, that the midway they call it. And I just, it just became a place to, to kind of go and, and just, I mean, maybe talk to that one time I went and it was less than two years after he died. And I noticed that the, the headstone was loose. That was, it wasn't, it wasn't entirely loose. Like it was going to fall off on its own. It just moved on the screws. And then I started to just wiggle it back and forth and then more back and forth. And I, I, I alleged may have broken it off and then put it down the back of my pants. And, you know, it's like I had scoliosis. I had this, you know, <laughs> headstone, this headstone making me walk off of it for the first time. And I get in the car and I, I had it in my room and I, and I slept with it for years in between my mattresses. Most people put Playboys. I put a headstone between my mattress. <laughs> I'd never met, you know, Junior, and um, I was in Thrifty, Thrifty Mart in San Fernando, and my grandmother was with me, and I'm going through the checkout with her, and I look, and it had like the Globe, some, some, not the, not the Enquirer or the Star, maybe the Globe, the one that always had like the Martians, and the kid with the bald head and pointy ears, <laughs> and then it had a picture of his mom, and it said. Grave robbers are trying to steal my son's body. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and it was his mom, you know, she was saying that her son can't rest in peace because somebody took his headstone. I, I felt I felt bad. I mean, I'm going to give it back. They already replaced it with another one. But um, I, I mean, I was a criminal on a national level at that point. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I, I'm... Listen, I, I saw a movie as a kid where they're trying to steal Abraham Lincoln's body, a couple of robbers, a black and white film. I think I'm pretty close, but uh, I had that thing. You know, and the things that's crazy is I don't know where it is, and I think it's in the building that we have an eye. I'm pretty sure I have to find it. I think they tried to steal uh, Charlie Chaplin's body at one point, too, so you're <laughs> Freddie Prince is I mean, in good company. You know, Graham Parsons, that musician that died in, like, 1973, he, he said, you know, when I die, man, I want you guys to take me out to Joshua Tree and have and just buried me out there. They took his body and they went out there. And they tried to cremate him in Joshua Tree, and the, and the sheriffs came and they, those guys got arrested, man. And they 
took his body and then buried it somewhere proper. But they, they took his body and went to Joshua Tree and, and had drinks with them. And then they were going to cremate him out there. And they got caught. <laughs> My goodness. You were um, you were talking a little bit about NBC Burbank and going out there uh, in your younger days. Now, uh, oh. of course, later uh, you made uh, a little bit of history there when you did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Now, I know you were doing Arsenio quite a bit. So this is a two-part question. First of all, were you at all concerned by doing Arsenio that the Carson bookers might not want to have you on? And uh, when, and how did you end up getting booked with Johnny Carson? You know what? That's a that is a very good question, my man. I got great answers. I got a chance to go to Vegas and work in Vegas with the Playboy Girls of Rock and Roll. It's like a, a review show, and was uh, two shows a night, and it was in the Maxima Hotel. And I was there for maybe a year in 89, 89, late 89 or summer of 90. I uh, went, I used to go every day across the street, cold ball. And I think Tupac got shot in that intersection right there. So there, oh, there wow. was Al Phillips, the cleaner. It was right by Bally's and it was Al Phillips, the cleaner and a, and a AM PM. And, and every day at 10 o'clock, I would go. 2 a.m. p.m. would walk, you know, doing the review show. I was making $750 a week. And I would get two cheeseburgers under the lamp, that lamp that all the cheese is hard, and then a bag of Doritos and then a Diet Coke and a USA Today. And that was my daily routine. And that was the only time I left the hotel, once at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then one day I, I look at the life section of USA Today and Ron Schock is there. I think Ron Schock passed away a few years ago. But he was standing there, and it said that Johnny Carson was going to be leaving The Tonight Show um, in May of 92, and that there were only six spots available for for new comedians before he left. And and I was like, oh, my God. And I'm, I'm sitting in the desert, you know, and I'm thinking, that's it's just like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Like, there's six <laughs> spots, you know, for comedians. And I'm like, wow. And then for... for but fucking two years I had, because I got a golden ticket in my head. I mean, awful, man. Torture. <laughs> I, mean, I got a golden ticket. So I, 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 I'm around the, I'm around the improv on Melrose and, and Shapiro West, who were, who were Seinfeld's managers. They were going to come and see me. And as I went on stage, uh, Jim McCauley walked in and, and saw George Shapiro and Diane and said, uh, do you guys represent this kid? And they, they said, no, no, we're looking about, you know, maybe pursue being his man. And they, he says, you know, if you do sign him, tell him I want to uh, talk to him more about, about his act, maybe go on The Tonight Show. So when I get off, you know, they go, we got great news. We somehow don't ask us, don't ask how we did it. I mean, they didn't do anything. <laughs> but um, I got asked to go and prepare material to take to Jim McCauley. And then it is at NBC. They don't use that studio anymore. I think it's called the Burbank Studios. And uh, I could see the Wiener Schnitzel. I could see the liquor store, a I could see the liquor stores where we stole Seagram's when we went and took the, the tour. We were drunk in that, in that place. That was probably 20 years earlier. And all of a sudden now I go to his office and I'm standing, you know, like the old days, you stand at the desk and I stand up and he says, okay, let, let me see what you got. No audience. So I just started to tell some jokes. He never laughed. He went, ah, ah. <laughs> and probably did about 10 minutes. And then he said, okay, so I don't like this. I like that. I like this. Lose this part. 
and I like the ending, move the ending to the beginning, and then I think the beginning more toward the end, and then give me a call when you think you got it ready. But it was really like taking a car apart and saying, use the tire as a steering wheel and use the, the trunk as your engine. I mean, nothing made sense. No, no, it didn't work the way that he wanted to, to do it. Didn't really work the way that I, I did my standup, but I worked on it for uh, maybe a week. Every day I fall asleep on my paper to wake up, go back and do it. And then a week later, I go over there and I see him, but I know he's going to be in there. I see him and I wasn't really ready to, to be seen. And he says, oh, you're going to be doing the stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know, some of it at the beginning. I mean, I went up there and I, I did, probably did like 10 minutes. And when I got off, he put his hand out and he said, uh, congratulations, man. You got the Tonight Show. Wow. So and what then I, I had a date in November of 91 and Bill Cosby bumped me because he was going to do stand-up. And I think the word came back that no two stand-ups on the same show. And then... I got bumped and I told everybody I got bumped and they said, Oh man, you know, you're, 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 you're not going to get rebooked. I mean, I don't know a guy that got bumped 20 years ago and they never called him back. So I got bumped. And then two days later, they called me and they said, how's next Wednesday. So it was myself, Bob Newhart, Lisa Stansfield and myself on the show. You're in good company though, because I think Flip Wilson got bumped something like six times or some crazy number when he first did Carson in New York back in the sixties. The I mean, there's nothing like that right now that exists anywhere. I mean, uh, not publishers clearing house. I don't, I'm not sure what's around. I'm not sure what you could do. Maybe SpaceX, where you could go to space and come back in the same day. That's the equivalent of doing the Tonight Show with with Johnny Carson. And you know, as the years go by, and as comedians, you know, do less stand up, but then you know, get a following on on YouTube or they have their own Patreon channel, whatever the fuck it is. There's nothing like like coming on the Mayflower and landing at Plymouth Rock. I just, I, it's just, there's nothing comedically that you could do in that area. If you were, if you were doing stand-up in that time, they would ask you, did you do the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? No, I never did. Uh, I, for all of my life, I will say that I never, ever thought that I would be able to do it in any way. And uh, to be able to be, and to have been one of the six is, is maybe one of the greatest things that, has ever happened to me in my life. Now, not only did you get to work with uh, Johnny Carson, who, of course, was a friar, you also, I found out, opened for Bob Hope, who was a friar. What do you remember about working with Bob Hope? Uh, Bob Hope, uh, I was, um, you know, I'm going to tell you, though. So I was dating the woman that was going to be my wife, and Anne had a partner that was a producer, and they did, like, the America's Hope Award with Bob Hope. So, you know, Ann and I were just dating, and she somehow worked getting me to open for Bob Hope in Walnut Creek, California. So I flew out there, and we are at Doubletree, and they said, come down, you know, we're going to leave to go to the theater in the car. And it was just Bob Hope and I in the, in the car. Really? Everybody else everybody else was in other cars. It's just me and Bob Hope. And he says, hey, uh, what do you know about this place? And I said, uh, I know that it's the grand opening, Mr. Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went up there. I did all right. You know, I think Diane Carroll and Big Damone might have sang. Oh, wow. And then Bob Hope goes out there, and there's a dude in the front row with these huge cards, like as wide as you can see behind me. And they have writing on them. And the guy's in the front row, the guy's trying to move them over. And I said, I said, what's that? They go, it's his act. <laughs> what do you mean it's his act? He goes, yeah, you know, he, he, he doesn't can't remember the joke, so they're written on these. I mean, they were written on garage doors, man. This guy... And he would read them, and the guy would move it out of the way, and then move the other one in the way. And then 
this will tell you that I don't care how long people have done comedy. I don't care where they've done it. I don't care who you can compare yourself to, but comedians are always obsessed with how did I do? Bob Hope didn't have to say, how, how did I do anybody's Bob Hope? We go, we're in the car and it's dark in the car and I can see him. He's still aware of his nose, you know, it, 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 it's not that far to the hotel and clicks the light. And now the light comes down and, it, and it's on his nose. So you can see the ski nose. It looks like that drawing that used of him on all his shows. Yeah. And he says to me, what'd you think of that crowd tonight? And I said, I, I thought they were all right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, since nobody had ever done stand up in there or had any performance, you know, it's hard to tell what the room could take or not take. And I said, I thought you were funny. I think I, it took you maybe two or three to get into a rhythm. And I thought after that, you, you, you killed him. And he was all silent. He goes, that's what I thought. And he goes up there and turns the light off. Even he said, what'd you think of that crowd? He wanted to know from me how I thought he did. And I, I told him honest. He started a little bit slow. Then he, start, then he started to land them. And you're like, oh, he, he's got he's got a, a rhythm going now. And how Amazing. old was he at this point? Like 90-something? Yeah, he was in his early 90s, yeah. And then he did the Bob Hope golf tournament. Right. And Dolores Hope was still alive. And Bob Hope was in bad shape, but he was alive. And uh, Dolores comes over to me and she says, you're my husband's favorite. And I said, uh, my show had been on maybe two years. And I said, what? And she goes, you're my husband's favorite. Because, you know, Bob can't hear. I mean, if you couldn't hear in 91, really can't hear it in the early 2000s. <laughs> So she says to me, he loves your show. He puts it on full blast because he can't hear. So they 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 turn the volume up in the house full blast when my show comes on. And he'll be like, hey, honey, here's that, here's that kid we like. And he would watch and he would watch my show. I don't think he thought I was the same guy from the 10 years or 13 years before. But I said, there's no way that's true. And she goes, well, that's true. You were my husband's favorite. Now, he loved how animated I was, he said. He loved how animated I was and how I was a Chicano. You know, he, he told me that in the car, he told me that Desi Arnaz may have been the smartest person that he ever met in the business. But everybody thought that he was an idiot because he had an accent. And he goes, I never understood why they would think he wasn't intelligent just because he spoke with an accent. And he goes, he owned his own studio and he created the format that they shoot situation comedies in and created this whole other thing. And uh, he was exactly right. And he said... I heard him say it, that he was the smartest business person he ever saw in, in comedy. And a great talent. I, I mean, a great musician, a, gr a great uh, comic actor, as we found out from I Love Lucy. Just uh, all around a, a brilliant uh, performer, as oh you my know God, so yes. far. Now, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you talk about uh, your George Lopez sitcom. Uh, I, I'm curious to know, how long did it take you to adjust from being a stand-up performer to performing in the confines of a sitcom. And what wisdom have you uh, imparted on your daughter, Maya, and on your new show, Lopez versus Lopez? Well, um, I had never taken any acting lessons. And it's funny, like, nobody ever asked me, hey, can you act? They knew I was funny. Peter Roth was the president of Warner Brothers, came to see me, and then Stu Bloomberg, who was a great guy, still around, he was president of ABC. It was about talent back then. So they come and see me at the ice house. I'm just killing them both times. And then we get the deal. We start writing with Bruce, you know, Helford. And, and there's just a whole thing of manifestations, man. I mean, when Drew Carey's show was number one, and I would watch it with my wife, and then I would say, man, where's my Bruce Helford? Because they would say created by 
uh, Bruce Alford and Drew Carey. And I would say every week, where's my, where's my Bruce Alford at? And I, I never even considered being an actor. I, you, just, you just kind of assume that you could somehow get through it. But in uh, December of 2001, we already sold the pilot. We were writing the pilot for the first show. And right before Christmas break, Bruce Alford ended up being my creator partner. Uh, said, hey, why don't you act with a couple of guys here? And I was so, I was terrible. I was terrible. In, uh, ter terrible actor, terrible actor, terrible rhythm, terrible, just everything about it was awful. And I looked back at those guys and those guys were like, okay, that's fine. Great. No, you don't, that's fine. But I, what I saw in them was a bit of that. Did anybody ask this guy if he could act? So when I got when I got home, I called my manager and I said, hey, man, you got to find me an acting coach like today. And he said, I, I got the perfect person, this woman, Warner Laughlin. And Warner Laughlin was with me from that day up until the 102nd show in 2007. I could not have done it without her. But also, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't um, like a lot of comedians have a lot of uh, bravado, man. They got a lot of swagger. They got a lot of attitude. I didn't think, even with bravado and swagger, that I could last uh, in in doing a sitcom and actually not knowing how to act. I didn't know how to act, and I learned. And she taught me, uh, you know, because I was a, I was a person that wasn't very uh, animated and very introverted. And I mean, that shit is not going to get you a television show. So I had to learn how to how to modulate my voice and how to listen and stay in the scene and not bug my eyes out. I would bug my eyes down. And somebody wrote about it in a, in a, like a, in a review. And then all everybody looked for was, you know, is he going to bug his eyes out? <laughs> and uh, I only bugged my eyes out maybe one or two shows. The rest of them, they probably cut out. And, uh, um, but bugging my eyes out would have been my acting theory if I had I got an acting coach. That's how you <laughs> emphasize though, you know, like Rodney Danger just emphasize that, 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 that's on the door, you know. <laughs> and um I I um it's amazing how anybody climbs, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro or wherever they hike, the Hill the Himalayas, but every journey starts with a step. And I would say that in the last twenty some years, I don't think anybody would be hard pressed to find a comedian that's had a career like I have, but it would have all never happened if I hadn't have been asked to read with that guy and then realizing that I couldn't act. That that was that was a that was sent from above to to make me realize that I need to concentrate on this too and not just thinking I have a show. And now you're doing Lopez versus Lopez. What is your favorite part of doing the show with your daughter? You know, you and your daughter just have a great chemistry. Uh, was, was that practiced was that learned or uh, does it just come natural on camera i mean mine was is 26 and i don't think that i've seen anybody get good fast i mean i was in my 40s mine had the same problems that i had a little bit with the emotion or staying in the scene or also things that you know go getting going and getting a cup of coffee or, or pretending to make a sandwich or pretending to dry plates like i had a hard time finding things to do and mine had it a little bit, but we had great directors. But, you know, mine got into Second City when she was like 19. And, you know, she'd studied comedy and she'd studied drama. Way much more um, uh, prepared than I was. But also, mine was always some someone that wouldn't follow through when things got tough. 
And that's the way I was. And I was afraid that because of the pressure of doing a sitcom that when it got frustrating for her, she would stop and not want to do it in front of everybody in the crowd and on the crew. And I was like, that would be the death of the show. So we had a great director, Kelly, and she prepared mine with an acting coach. And, you know, you go over and over. And then I only treated her as an actor, not as my daughter. So we let Mayan find herself and then surrounded her with incredible actors. But Mayan is, um, I'm very proud of her for, for what she has done. And then even if you look at, you know, we were supposed to announce the Golden Globe Awards last month and I got COVID. And I was expecting Mayan to say, I can't do this without you. I don't want to go out there by myself. Uh, I don't I don't want to get up that early and then have to do I've never done it before. You, you've done stuff like that. They replaced me with Selena's, the actress for the show, and mine never called, never said, how am I going to do this without you? Just went and did it. And I called her when she was done and told her how great she was and how amazing she's been. I mean, truly, truly a testament that I would have thought that I've seen things in Mayan in the last year that I didn't see in the other 25 years. It's a really impressive show, and I think you and mine are doing a terrific job. You're uh, really one of the great comedy duos of our time right now. It's uh, it's uh, it's a lot I mean, of fun. To see, but to see your to see your daughter, you know, she did the first show a couple times. You know, she's five years old, and to see her every day that we're there, I see her almost like a flip. When you have books that you could flip, and the and the characters would move, you know, I see her as a toddler. I see her as a baby. I see her. I see her in first grade in in her 10th birthday party every day that we work my mind goes back to when she was born and i see her different parts of her life and then we land on the day but i it's just something that i i just it's not easy to get into network tv uh, especially if you've been in already they kind of think eh. but this show would have not happened without mayan lopez being involved you know debbie wolf created this idea from her tiktoks and Mayan was really good in all the meetings and everything. But this show wasn't about me. This show was about Mayan. And uh, I would not, this show could not work without her. And I don't think it would work with just me. So uh, it's because of her. I uh, was on YouTube and I saw uh, your performance on the Jerry Lewis telethon with Norm Crosby. What do you uh, What do you remember about doing the telethon? What time were you on? Uh, did you get to meet Jerry? And uh, what was Norm Crosby like? Who was, of course, part of the Friars. I became friends with Norm Crosby and those guys because of Bud uh, Friedman got arrested. So I was kind of cool with Bud, and Bud would invite me to dinners with Ruta Lee and Bud. Uh, 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 oh, I love Ruta. She's great. Ruta as Shecky and Norm and um, uh, Red Buttons, who I love, the sweetest man ever. And all these great comics, and we'd sit around and, you know, uh, Bud loved champagne, and he he loved to host these guys, and he would ask me if I could would go over and sit with them. Absolutely. So so Norm was great because it's Norm, man. It's like Norm Crosby. You see him, and then and then I think I was on like maybe four in the morning, you know. So they're like, hey, you know, you got a good time, you know, four in the morning. People are uh, people are starting to wake up. They wake up and they check and see who's on. But yeah, I saw Jerry and I saw Ed McMahon and kind of knew Ed a little bit. But listen, Matt, I used to watch the Jerry Lewis television all the time to see who I would see. And and there it was. I mean, nobody ever brings that up. That's that's great that you did that. Nobody, if I had set my mind to something, even if I didn't have enough talent to do it, somehow I was presented with the opportunity. 
<laughs> but listen, uh, your career, uh, I, again, I could go on with you all day. It's uh, it's fascinating that you got to know these people. And uh, it's great that you knew Ruta Lee. I, I know her a little bit, and she's just uh, one of the loveliest people I know. So uh, I'm Beautiful uh, woman, yeah. I'm glad to hear her name. Well, uh, George, I, all I can say is it's a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, to conclude, uh, I, I do want to ask, why do you think uh, the Friars Club uh, continues to endure after all of these years? Uh, of course, you've been a part of the organization, and uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you as part of the Friars. Uh, why do you think the Friars uh, continues to live on after over 100 years in existence? I wouldn't want to compare it to the military. but In, in, in military, there's a strong bond um, amongst uh, soldiers. And I, I don't care if they fought side by side or haven't seen each other in 50 years. There's a bond that yourself on the line brings you. And I've seen it. You know, I've seen it with, with, with uh, guys who, who have been in the service. So to me, the Friars is like being surrounded by the greatest sculptors and painters in the Louvre. And then you're hanging in the Louvre too, but your picture isn't, you know, it's not from Da Vinci or Monet or not the David, but you in your own way has have created some art to get you in the Louvre. So being a Friar to me is being part of an exclusive club that you cannot be in or not appreciate unless you've you know walked the pavement and and put it on the line and you did not give up and you continue to thrive and continue to move comedy forward it's not for magic they got their magic club it's it's for stand-up and it's for comedy and when you see who's in it all the guys that i love you know billy chris freddie roman god bless his soul and all the people that i've loved in comedy have been friars and that's why i think it's, it's important to to me being a prior, or people should understand that. When you call AAA, you don't have to worry about your car anymore. They, they got it. And when you're a prior, you don't have to worry about ever having to prove yourself, whether you're funny or successful. Just telling everybody you're a prior does it all. George, all I can say is it is uh, an absolute honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I'm 26. I'm the same age as mine, and uh, I grew up uh, seeing your show on Nick at Night, and uh, it's uh, it's a little surreal to be talking to you right now, I have to admit. It's truly an honor. So thank you uh, so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I'm i touched by that because uh, I, I it just everything has you know, um, been such a whirlwind in, in this time. And about two months ago, I bought, I bought this. Oh, that's a Rolex. nice watch. And this watch belonged to Johnny Carson. Where did you find that? This was brought to me by Michelle, my wardrobe person. And she comes in my dressing room at Lopez versus Lopez. And across the road is the Johnny Carson building. They do it at Universal now. And I see Johnny Carson every day, the building when I'm while I'm, you know, preparing. And she comes in and she says, Hey, I got a weird kind of call from Hans, this jeweler. And he goes, Hans has ended up with Johnny Carson's Rolex, I guess his widow, uh, Alex, was dating the guy and she gave it to the guy and the guy's had it since 2005 and he doesn't wear it and, he want, and he's thinking about, uh, he wants to sell it. And I said, I said, where is it? You know, let me see it. And she's like, no, no, like, he has it, but if you want to see it, I'll have him bring it. And he said, yeah, take it, have George look at it, no pressure to buy it. And when I touched this watch, it like a light went through me. <laughs> Like you would just feel something go through you. And I told her, I got to buy it. What are you talking about? I, I got to have it. And uh, Johnny Carson was wearing this watch in 1991 when I did the Tonight Show with him. That is really coming full circle. <laughs> That's full circle. And I mean, 
I watched I watched him in an interview prior and, and you know Don Rickles and all the stuff in the because he wore it for the first time in 1979. And I watch all of those things on YouTube and 95% of the time he's wearing this watch. He tries to hide it because it was it would sh it would shine so much you could see him kind of pull uh, he pulls the thing and and whenever he reaches for somebody it'll come out and then he'll pull it back down right away because it did catch a lot of light but no one really was rocking presidentials rolexes back then and and it was a new thing very european and i guess johnny carson got this watch from alex and he wore it for 20 years that's really impressive and as a huge carson fan uh, uh <laughs> i'm starstruck to be talking to you here on zoom and looking at the johnny carson watch that's and, I, and you know, I, I, um, he came, he came and saw me. I think he was having some trouble with some stalkers. Some, some guy snuck on a lot and was trying to hurt him. You know, so he had Burbank police follow him in the beginning. That so, so after the show, maybe twenty minutes, they're like, everybody close the hall. And I was like, shit, what? I think he might, he might be coming. So, so, two cops came around, and then Freddie de Cordova came around the corner, and then Johnny Carson around the corner, and with two cops behind him, and I was like, oh my god. And I'm standing in the doorway, and he, I think he's just going to walk by me. And he stopped, and he went, that was a, that was great. Uh, talk to Jim about maybe coming back before I leave. I'm leaving next May. I said, yes, I understand. And uh, But good shot, you know, good shot. You should be very proud, you know. Try to see, talk to Jim about coming back. I didn't care about coming back. I just, I'd done it. <laughs> I wasn't trying to do it twice. I just want to do it once. Well, you and Drew Carey uh, squeezed in right at the end there. Yeah, man. I mean, Drew Carey was living in his car and destroyed on The Tonight Show, much like Freddie Prince did. Just, just a handful of people that have done, and he was a star the next day. Me, it took, you know, 15 years. Him, amazing. And and when I would say, where's my Bruce Helford? He's doing Lopez versus Lopez, and he did the first show. So uh, I think my manifestation uh, of destiny is 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 100%. George, thank you again, and uh, best to you, and uh, best of luck with Lopez versus Lopez Fridays at 8, 7 Central on NBC, and you can also stream it on Peacock, I believe, the day after the show airs on uh, broadcast television. Yep. Thank well, man, you, George. You know, me on. Just give me a holler, man. I'm, I'm, I'm yours. I, George, I appreciate it, and thank you for indulging my uh, fascination with Norm Crosby. <laughs> I'll be in New York next week. I'm going to come by. Have a drink. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to you soon, George. Thanks for listening to the Friars Club podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information on the Friars Club, please visit FriarsClub.com. We hope to see you there.